Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, we feature an interview with Greg Ken. Greg Ken is a rock and roll musician, author, radio personality, and podcast host. We chat with Greg about growing up in Baltimore, moving to the Bay Area, informing the Greg Ken Band in the 1970s and how that band signed with Berserkly Records. We discuss his hits, The Breakup Song and Jeopardy, and how the music video for the later was a pioneering achievement and MTV sensation. Greg talks about his writing career with focus on his most recent book, Rubber Soul, a historical fiction novel that tells the story of the Beatles' early career a book which is rooted in fact from many interviews that Greg conducted with several members of the Beatles camp. We get into stories from his time as morning host of the award-winning Bay Area radio show on KFOX that he had hosted for over 16 years and his new direction as podcaster with the new Greg Ken Show. Greg continues to rock with his band, which features his son, Rye Ken. Sit back and relax to another exciting episode of Music Life Radio, this one entitled Rubber Soul, The Greg Ken Story. Welcome, Greg, to the program, Music Life Radio. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So James Brown was credited as the hardest working man in show business, but I might have to say that based on your bio that maybe you should have the crown. <laughs> You're a musician, radio personality, novelist, concert promoter, MC, screenwriter, philanthropist, Hall of Fame inductee, and now you're even doing podcasting. Did I leave anything out? That's <laughs> pretty much it. You know, <laughs> it sounds it sounds like a lot when you say it there, Dan. But really, it, it, you know, it's like none of it's like heavy lifting. You know what I mean? It's not like we got to go down and work in a warehouse. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I love all my jobs. I mean, I don't. Re- I mean, podcasting to me, it's fun. You know what I mean? It's like when I was a kid. My, uh, I got for Christmas one year, I was probably 10 years old. I got one of these little reel to reel tape recorders. Do you remember the kind with the little three and a half inch reels? Oh yeah, definitely. And, and, and we used to, me and my cousin used to make funny radio shows, <laughs> stupid, goofy stuff. You know, we'd interview each other and it was just silly stuff. And now I kind of do it for a living. So it's, you know, to me. None of these jobs are actually work. In fact, they're all aimed at getting out of work. <laughs> yes, well, well put. <laughs> yes. So let's start in with your uh, early history. Now you grew up in Baltimore. Yeah. What what kind of influences did you have um, early on in your life musically? Growing up in Baltimore. Oh, I had a wonderful time growing up. Baltimore was like happy days. You know, a lot. I knew a lot of guys like the Fonz. It was a great town to grow up in. We, we, we lived two and a half blocks from Memorial Stadium. And, you know, I used to go see the Colts, Baltimore Colts all the time. And 
and of course the Orioles and my, uh, my cousin had a collection of folk records and I used to go over there at Christmas time. God, I must've been 12 years old and he'd play like the Kingston trio. Oh yeah. Stuff like that. You know, Tom Dooley. And I really loved it and I got into it. So later on, um, I got a guitar when I was about 13. Actually, I found a guitar with a cracked neck and it was unplayable. And I hounded my mother so much that she took me down to a pawn shop. And I'll never forget this. And the pawn shop that she took me to was called, it was a world famous pawn shop called Living, Livingston Loans. Ah. Livingston Loans was located on the block which was the infamous strip, uh, you know, it was like the pornography section of Baltimore when I was a kid. The block was infamous, and that's where Blaze Star, you know, they are, that's where all the strip clubs were, like the Gaiety Burlesque and the Two O'Clock Club and, and Blaze Star and Tempest Storm and all these world-famous strippers would play there. And my mother didn't know that it was on the block. <laughs> she had a hold of my hand and she pulled me down that street so fast. <laughs> I could barely walk and she just kept moving. Uh, she didn't want me to look inside. These places had, you know, barkers. Come on in, kid. See the, ki <laughs> see the titties. Come on in. <laughs> and my mother is just like stern as can be, just dragged me down the street. We walked in there. I bought a K guitar, K-A-Y brand guitar, and um, it was $40, I remember, and that was it. That was the beginning of the end, and I, and I first song I learned, I think, was Tom Dooley by the Kingston Trio, and a few years later, when, uh, when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, everything changed for all of us, and suddenly... You know, folk music and singing about uh, John Henry was boring. Now it was time. And right, right at that time, I was getting into Bob Dylan. I got a copy of Freewheel, and that, that changed my life. But right about that time, the Beatles hit, and all bets were off. So that was the band that pretty much had a significant impact on you, on your music career? Yeah, absolutely. We left school Friday uh the ed sullivan was sh show was on at eight o'clock sunday night it's a family show and uh we left school friday at three o'clock with our care combed back <laughs> brill cream and you know our idols were dion you know the wanderer and oh, like yeah. that kind of you know everybody was like the fonz <laughs> that monday after the sunday night performance by the beatles on the ed sullivan show that monday Every guy, every cool guy, I should say, in the entire school had abandoned the Brill Cream and was now doing the dry hair in the eyes thing and trying to look like Paul McCartney. And it just happened overnight. You know, it was emblematic. Not only did the direction of our hair change, but the direction of our lives changed. Wow, that's amazing. Now, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but you just came out with a book called Rubber Soul which is like a historical fiction book that features the Beatles. And a lot of these places in Baltimore you just talked about are actually in the book. Now, yeah, you, you know, I, I had a lot of fun because I kind of went back because, you know, this, we're talking about, you know, the early day, you know, 64, 
through Beatlemania, I guess you guys, so 64 through 68 were the heaviest years. And you're talking about that's when I was growing up in Baltimore. And, uh, you know, I knew these people. I, I knew... A, I knew I used to go to the Peabody bookshop and pick up on the girls from Maryland Institute, all the artist chicks. <laughs> and we used to bring our guitars down there. And, you know, it, it was it was a cool scene. And it was really a lot of fun for me to weave it into the story and to have that be the world that uh, that Dustin Bob walks into. I really was so happy with with those characters, especially Dustbin Bob and Cricket, you know, his girlfriend that he winds up marrying, and uh, Clovis and his girlfriend, Earlene, the stripper. <laughs> those are great characters, yes. They are. I loved them so much. When the book was over, Dan, I, I immediately started on a sequel because I didn't want to let these characters go while they were fresh in my mind. Yeah. So I'm about 157 pages into the sequel. Well, good. We'll talk about it a little bit more, too. But I also wanted to ask you, is the Heidi Ho Soul Shack, is that actually in Baltimore? No, there was another place called Ed's Soul Shack. Oh, okay. So I just, uh, and Preston, Washington, was the name of... Uh, our handyman, he was this big old black guy and he used to come on Saturdays and just fix everything. And he worked for, you know, my parents and my, my, uh, my cousins and my grandmother, you know, his name was Preston Washington and he'd come and, uh, he would hum and sing weird blues songs while he was working. You know, you need the guy to like, you know, put in a washing machine. You called Preston, he came and did it for you. But I love this guy because the kids would hang around him because he told great stories. And he was the guy that later became Preston Washington from the Heidi Ho Soul Shack. The Heidi Ho is kind of a composite place of several uh, soul records emporiums uh, from when I was a kid. We used to go, there was a little mom and pop record shop. And I'm talking about stores that were like a half a store wide. You know what For I mean? sure, yeah. And, and they'd have Nipper in the window and uh, records hanging from every available spot. And uh, there was one, you know, walking distance from my mother's house. And they had a listening booth. I don't know if they have the, uh, well, I know they don't. You, they, they used to have a listening booth where you could borrow the record, go in the listening booth, listen to it, and decide if you liked it or not. It was crazy. And, of course, me and my sister went down there every Saturday and uh, the big black guy behind the counter knew everything about everything. So these are all composite characters. I really had a lot of fun because they were really true people. Oh, that's great. So jumping back into uh, your career, what was your first band? Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Well, we were folkies to begin with. And I used to play at this place called Patches 15 Below. And it was a coffee house where they only sold you know, it was like a, a teenage coffee house, and they had a hootenanny on Sunday night. Every, anybody could get up and play. So me and my cousin had a folk duo called the Voyagers, and we were like kind of like the Kingston Trio, and we would do stuff like Tom Dooley and MTA, and that was really, I guess, technique. And we would get up on stage. Looking back, I know we were petrified, but looking back, I mean, I guess that's where I learned to be comfortable on stage because I... I remember 
uh, after the first, you know, six months of us getting up there on Sunday night, didn't seem like such a big deal. And I started to enjoy it. I, I, my cousin never got over it. He was always nervous, but you know, I, I enjoy it to me when, when you're entertaining a group of people, whether it's a hundred thousand or just 10, you know, it's really the same gig. You're just there to, you know, play some songs and have some fun and, you know, learning how to be comfortable doing that is like half the battle. I'm, I'm super comfy on stage now. Well, yeah, you've had a lot of experience. <laughs> well, thousands of gigs will do it. <laughs> yes. you know, say after the first thousand gigs, they, they get pretty smooth. My band's been together for a long time. Even the replacement band, which is the current band, of course, only two of the five guys that cut the breakup song are still walking. Oh, okay. Dave Carpenter, lead guitarist, and Gary Phillips, keyboard player, are both dead. Uh, Gary died of cancer, and uh, Dave had a heart attack. And uh, Steve Wright had a stroke, so, you know, he's, he's very limited in what he can do. And so the only guys standing are me and the drummer, Larry. Oh. Now, I understand Larry drank milk, never smoked, drank, or took drugs. <laughs> Whereas I was completely out of my mind and should have been the first one to go down. I don't understand it, Dan. <laughs> yeah, life is strange. Snorted <laughs> enough blow for the rest of the band and <laughs> drank and smoked. Yeah. Uh, none of which I do anymore, obviously. But, uh, you know, I should have been the first one to go, and I'm still standing. <laughs> now, I read on your uh, website, on your bio, there was an interesting story I saw there about a contest that you won. Was that before you had started the Voyagers? Um, that was right around the same time. Okay. And I cut the, I had that little reel-to-reel I was telling you about. Yeah, and I went, and we went and I went to the bathroom at my mother's house, which was all white tile. It was an old house. Closed the door. It was a great echo chamber, and I cut a tape, and it was just laying around. I played it for my parents, I think, and my mother sent it in to K, uh, <laughs> oh, no, WCAO, which was the top forty station in the big talent search, and I won. Uh, I won. I won. Uh, I won a pile of records. <laughs> <laughs> I won a an electric Vox guitar, and I won a typewriter, all three of which I used in my various careers. Exactly. <laughs> Ironic that I'd get a typewriter among the prizes, isn't it? Yeah, why were they offering up a typewriter? It was just I donated? Don't know. Yeah, interesting. Hey, I know that the, all the records, they gave me about 25 records, and they were all cutouts. I knew that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wasn't dumb. <laughs> And uh, the Vox Teardrop was a cool guitar, though. I like that one. No, oh, that's great. So what? when did you actually move to the San Francisco or the Bay Area? That was in the early uh, 70s. Yeah, that would have been 1971. Okay, and what led you out here? Uh, well, I had friends um, that were in the music business out here. And Alan Mason and uh, Matthew Kaufman... And Joel Turtle used to come and see me when they were in law school in Baltimore. And Matt Kaufman, particularly, and, and Alan Mason, they would come like I'd be playing at these little coffee houses, and they, I'd see them every weekend. And then uh, a couple of years later, I get a call one night from Alan saying, hey, man, you should come out here to Berkeley and play some songs. You know, we, we got a little something going out here. 
and um, they were managing Earthquake at the time. So I came out, Alan at the t right that month, he, he started working at A&M Records. I came out and crashed on his couch for a couple of months, and I got a development deal with A&M Records songwriting branch called Almo Music. Uh, and the head guy at Almo Music didn't like me. It was uh, Paul Williams, you know, the little short guy? Okay. The little guy with the glasses, the little, you know, hobbit-looking guy. Uh -huh. he, he didn't like the kind of songs I wrote. <laughs> I was much grittier. He was more to like, can't you write something like tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree? Yeah. And I said, you know, hey, tie a yellow ribbon around this. <laughs> I was writing, you know, a little grittier <laughs> of a song back in those days. Anyway... That, uh, I remember they gave me $500, which seemed like a fortune to sign this deal, this development deal, uh, but they never used any of my songs, and Paul Williams never liked me, so we never went to the second level, but I remember I, w I turned around and bought a Volkswagen Bug. God, I think it was like a 67 turquoise VW Bug for $300. <laughs> and I still had 200 left over. Not too shabby. No. Yeah, that car, I uh, I drove it right into the ground. Actually, I think I totaled that car now. <laughs> I think so how did you end up signing with Berserkly Records? Well, uh, after a, about uh, almost a year in L.A., I couldn't stand it down there. And I'd come up here to visit with Matthew and Joel, and uh, I really liked the Bay Area. To me, the Bay Area was like everything I loved about California. You know, it had palm trees, but it wasn't full of crazy people like LA. The people in the Bay Area were actually nice, and there was there was a camaraderie among the musicians here. I never, you know, they called me up. They yeah. said, man, come on out here. We got some gigs you can open up for us, and we'll help you put together a band. And I, I like, what am I supposed to say? No, <laughs> it was like the call of a lifetime. So I did, I came out, I crashed on people's couches and uh, I started out playing for spare change on Telegraph Avenue at Sproul Plaza. And I would play out there with, uh, with Robbie Dunbar on lead guitar. And I played my Guild 12 string. He had a pig nose amp. And we used to make 40 bucks a day a piece. That was big money back then. Yeah. You yeah. could actually live <laughs> on the 40 bucks that you made if you played all day. Yeah. Then I got a job at uh, Rather Ripped Records. And I was, uh, at the time, I, I was good friends with the guys in Earthquake and Matthew. And they were playing down at the Long Branch. They were the house band after Eddie Money left. And they said, hey, you know, it's too bad you don't have a band because if you did, you could take over for Earthquake as the house band and play every Sunday night and open all the other nights of the week at the Long Branch. And I lied to the guy. His name was Malcolm. Malcolm, I'm sorry. I, I, I said, hey, I got a band. What do you mean? I got a band. All I had was a bass player, Steve Wright, my original bass player. And Steve says, you know, my brother-in-law plays drums and he ain't bad. And we put the band together in a less than a week, Dan, and that <laughs> band lasted for 11 years, made 12 albums, and had a whole bunch of hit records. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty cool story, but that's rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. You just got to get your foot in the door. Hey, and man, if I'd have <laughs> had two months, 
And I'd have been in L.A. auditioning guys at, like, SIR. You know, that's not rock and roll. And you get the best, oh, this guy looks good and this guy sounds good. No, we were thrown together by fate. He was the guy's brother-in-law. We got a guy that used to be in a, Dave Carpenter used to be in a, in a band with uh, Larry. And he said, hey, I, I know a guy's a really good guitar player. And boom, the band was put together. And we were playing the first week on. We never stopped playing. So in the uh, 80s, you're you know, really well known for the breakup song and Jeopardy. But what album and songs are you most proud of throughout your career? Well, I, I am very proud of the breakup song. That was album number seven. See, there's another thing, Dan. How could you go seven albums without having a top ten record? <laughs> I mean, that's unheard of. Yeah. Well, of course, on Berserkly, it was heard of. It was, it was par for the course. <laughs> um, we didn't have a hit until our seventh album, and that was the breakup song, our first top ten hit. At that point, we, were, we considered ourselves to be artists. We went around on a shoestring budget and played tours and, you know, worked out of the back of a van. And to have a hit, wow, to get royalty checks in the mail, it, wow, it was a whole other world. And I loved it. And, you know, ironically, the breakup song was a hit all over the world because uh, 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 uh translates into any language. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, even in, you know, like even in Tokyo, people would say, oh, you're the uh, 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 uh guy. <laughs> I like you. <laughs> they didn't know what I was talking about or what I was singing. I just heard the uh-uhs. I'll tell you the truth, Dan. I always meant to finish that song. Yeah. I only had a half a song's worth of lyrics, and I went and I was singing uh, 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 uh for every other line because I didn't have lyrics yet. It was a work vocal. I was supposed to come back later and fix those. But of course, after we recorded it, it was magic. When you're like, you can't fix these, these are cool. So that's how that song was born. Yeah. Crazy, but you know, that's the way things happen through the back door, it's rock and roll. Happy accident. The same thing with uh, with Jeopardy. All they heard was the woo, -woo 
I know that a lot of bands go in there and they work really hard. They do the whole album, and some A and R guy will come in and say, "I don't hear a single," and then they go back in to do one more song, which they would, would invariably dash off, and that would be the hit. Yeah. <laughs> so both of those songs were written quickly. And both of those songs seem to write themselves. And my advice to any young songwriter is the ones that write themselves are the good ones. They, they, like the great ones write themselves. And all the, all the hit records I've ever had were all written really quickly and organically. And the ones that I slaved over never went anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's true for a lot of artists. A lot of times people's first albums are kind of their best and they're just reaching inside themselves and popping it out. But it took you a few albums to get to it and uh, maybe that long trial and trail, just what it needed for you to get to that point, huh? Yeah, well, that was like the first thousand gigs we were talking about. Yeah. You know, you get to a tightness level when you're with the same guys for, you know, all those years. You get to a tightness level where, uh, you know, you don't even have to look at each other. You know what each other's going to do. And it really does affect your, it affects everything. Because you, when you write songs, like for instance, imagine what it's like to write songs and, and give them to the Stones. Like imagine what it's like for a Keith to write a song and turn it over to this, you know, Maserati sports car of a band. You know, they are just a well-oiled machine. Yeah, That's the cool part. You know, when, when the band was really tight, we used to rehearse and just jam and come up with riffs left and right, and we were just a songwriting machine. Now, what role did MTV play on making those songs popular? Do you have any comments on that? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, MTV was crucial making... Well, actually, there was no MTV in 81 when the breakup song... Yeah, it would have been 84. It, so. it was 80... Well, actually, it was 83... And that was the year that Jeopardy came out. And Jeopardy was, came at the right time in the right place. And it was the first concept video that MTV had. You know, all the other videos were fake live or it wasn't a concept video. We were the first video to actually have a storyline. And, you know, we were doing a parody of Night of the Living Dead. And, it, you know, it was kind of based on my first marriage. And, uh... You know, I look back on that and I thought to myself, what we're doing here is we're making a mini movie. And it was like a lot of fun. We did it on a, we had a pretty good budget and we, we, we hired a director and went in and did it. And when that thing hit MTV, MTV must have played it once an hour for a year. Yeah. Because that was the only one they had that was like that. Everything else was, had that look, you know, that live fake lip sync look. Oh, yeah. You know, guys strutting around singing a song with sexy girls. This was like a whole, you know, it was like a mini movie. And it, uh, it was the first. And, of course, all the videos after that became concept videos, the most notable of which would, would be Thriller, which I think was directly influenced by uh, the Jeopardy video. But M MTV loved it and played it and played it. And that's one of the reasons that record got to number one. Yeah, very innovative and groundbreaking. It was very, uh, very cool. Well, it was a lot of fun to make. You know, we had to do, we had a $100,000 budget, which seems like a, a fortune. And it was back in those days. But we, you know, like all of the, uh, the special effects, the green blood from the giant snake was actually Campbell's 
split pea soup, <laughs> squirted through squirt guns at my face. Uh, we, You know, the rubber, the giant rubber snake that comes out of the ground and grabs me, what we did was the, the snake was like rubber latex, and we wrapped it tightly around me, and we let it go, and we shot it, and then we ran it in reverse. And in reverse, it looks like it bursts through the wall and uh, and grabs me and wraps around me when actually it was run in reverse. <laughs> you know, little things like that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. We did the video shoot in one 48-hour marathon. Now, you've played with a lot of uh, remarkable musicians over the years, and we've talked about some of them, but you've also played with uh, Joe Satriani. First of all, it was wonderful playing with Joe in the band, but I had to take him aside after about six months. I said, Joe, you know th what the situation is here. You're way too good for this band. <laughs> you know, we're a three-chord band. Yeah. We're Credence. We're the Stones. We need sloppy Keith. We don't need Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> and he knew it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I said, look, I, I love you, Joe. I want you to be in the band forever, but you got to go solo. Yeah. You can't sit on this talent. And, of course, he did uh, Surfing with the Alien, and the rest is history. Yeah, exactly. But I think that his time, he played with Mick Jagger right after us. He played, uh, he played with the Greg Kinn band, I'd say, 80... Six and eighty-seven, and then he played and did a tour of Asia and played with Mick Jagger for one year, and then he went and then he cut the solo stuff and the rest is history. Of course, now he can be found playing with my other old buddy Sammy Hagar and Mike Anthony uh, for with Chickenfoot. Chickenfoot, yeah. And they're they're just maniacs. I mean, here are these guys that that were already the hardest working guys in show business, and then they do this on top of everything else. Yeah, that's uh, the super group. Yeah, I love them. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, we need more of that in rock and roll. Yeah, those guys really know how to just have a good time. It, it seems like their music is really fun. Yeah, and they're all, you know, they're all set money-wise. Yeah, they, they're so doing it for them. it's a labor of love, man. Yeah, exactly. Well, I want to get a little bit more personal, and we ask this of everybody on the show. What does music mean to you? And you can answer it any way you'd like. Oh, music means a lot to me. Music is passion to me. You know, music can make me cry. Certain, I know, I know this sounds hard to, to grasp, that a tough old bird like me could be reduced to tears. But if I hear a certain song at a certain time, I will break down and cry. You know, something will remind me of something that happened when I was 18 years old. And, you know, to me... I can't listen to background music. You know, Dan, if I'm in a restaurant and I, some, hey, sometimes we go to our favorite restaurant. They got a great jukebox. It's always playing these great oldies. Yeah. And I tell the guy, look, I can't, that's not <laughs> background music to me. <laughs> yeah. Like if I'm here in Runaround Sue by Dion and the Belmonts, I got to have it. I got to sing it. I got to experience it. <laughs> I got to hear it. I can't, I don't like music as ambient background music. I When music is on, I listen. And that's why sometimes I'll be driving in the car listening to the radio. My wife will be talking, and I, I don't even hear a word she's saying, which I will hear about later. <laughs> I know that feeling. I, you know, I say basically, oh, geez, honey, I'm sorry. I was just listening to the song. I was in my own little world. That happens a lot to me. And, uh, you know, I got to have music every day. I love it. 
it it changes my mood. It can make me happy or sad. It has depth. It causes me to be reflective. In a lot of ways, Dan, in the modern world, you know, I was raised an Episcopalian. I remember going to, to Sunday school and we went to church. My mother took us every Sunday. You know, my dad never went, but, you know, we grew up doing that. And, you know, I'm an, I'm an adult now, and I wouldn't call myself an ovary, a very religious guy. But music maybe has replaced religion in my life. You know what I mean? It, in a way, I, I always revert back to that. I'm not praying to music yet, but that could be right around the corner. <laughs> oh, oh, John Lennon. Oh, please, John, grant me this one wish. <laughs> very, very good. Now, what led you to switch into a career in radio? You did that for, what, 16 years? Yeah, 16 years and wound up in the Bay Area Radio Hall of Fame. Yeah. That was, that was a good, nice ride. Um, you know what? I, I, I filled in for Chris Jackson, a friend of mine, on KFOX 7 to midnight when he went on vacation like 17 years ago. And, and then when he got back from vacation, the uh, program director, Larry Sharp at the time, said, hey, you know what? We really like you and we want to we wanna give you a job. So I didn't, they, they put me on 7 to midnight. They put Chris on in the morning. And then about a year later, I got offered the morning job. And I did the morning job for 16 and a half years straight. It was like, and you know, we had great ratings the whole time. In fact, when I got fired, I I was leading the pack of all the rock stations in the ratings war. I mean, I'd already beat Lamont Tonelli and K Fog and all the other stations and the band. You know, we had won the ratings war. I just think that radio changed around me. You know, when I, you know, five six years ago, you could get rich being a morning guy. Yeah. You know, you could make, you know, four or five hundred grand a year and all the perks and get a free car and everything. Being a morning guy. You can't do that anymore. All the the corporate radio world has changed it so it's all bottom line now. Now if a guy does a great job, he's number one in the ratings and he brings in millions of dollars worth of advertisers that money doesn't go to him anymore. That money now goes to the uh, stockholders and the shareholders. Yeah. So they absorb all that dough. That used to go, they'd spread it around me. Like, I, you know, I, I got number one ratings. Uh, I could, you know, do this forever. I mean, you basically, you were bringing in, a, and you know, the whole thing is based on revenue. If they could make a lot of money, on you while you're on the air because you have great ratings then they can charge more money for commercials during that period and you know it's very uh, very cut and dry but my ratings kept going up every year uh, um, until I got fired so it was crazy so some suit just decided that they wanted to reduce costs is that what it can yeah it yeah it was yeah. like I'll bet you that some guy in the corporate office in Philadelphia was looking at the payroll for K Fox they went wait a minute <laughs> This morning guy is making that much money, yeah. and he's probably—I was probably making more than the PD, yeah, probably more than the GM, <laughs> and and I was having a better year too. But 
they they it was like holy cow get rid of that guy i don't care what you got to do but get rid of that guy we get rid of his salary and that's what radio has become yeah. so the you know the days when you can make a ton of money the glory days of radio have kind of gone by and i'll tell you the truth i enjoy doing the internet radio so much more i i like not having a boss yeah, I you have full control too, you know. I don't like adult supervision. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm going to play some weird songs. Yeah. Yeah. That's me. I'm good and and like like back on K-Fox, I couldn't talk for more than 3 minutes and only one thought per break. Thank you. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm do I'm talking for like 15 minutes a break. And I'm talking about 17 different things and I go off on tangents. And but that's me, and that's what I want to do. Sure. And I love not having a boss playing whatever music I like. It's all commercial free. The show is free. You can subscribe for free at iTunes. I I download them every day on iTunes onto my iPod, and then I listen to them on on the way to uh, the studio in the morning. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I listened to some of them. I I really liked it. It's very good. Yeah, it just it's just me talking like I'm talking to you. Yeah. I mean, to me that's what radio ought to be. Yeah, and and that what's great is, you know, with the power of the internet, we've got the ability to control that and you can target, you know, the markets that really want to receive your content. That's Well, you know, part of me wanted to go back and target the other morning shows in the Bay Area and take it to them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Why would you listen to Lamont Tonelli or K Fog? in the morning when you could have all the stuff that you got Greg Kinn backstage road stories and stuff and cool music and commercial free and it's free. Yeah. What, yeah. How could there even be a contest? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we started off with that in mind and, you know, I haven't really targeted anybody yet. We've only got about 23 shows uh, up right now. And I think maybe after about 50, we'll probably get pretty comfortable. Oh yeah, sure, definitely. What were some uh, highlights or stories from the uh, your radio um, period? Well, the first great story was when uh, my pro my first program director was the legendary Dana Jang. I don't know if you know Dana, but he's a really he's a real character. A great guy. He's a wonderful guy, uh, but he has some idiosyncrasies. I had gone and done like maybe two or three days of morning shows. You know, I just started out. And he calls me into his office, and he's got a cassette of that morning's show, which I didn't even know they had. That's what a nincompoop I was. <laughs> he goes, hey, let's listen to this. Uh, what was it? it was scoped, so it cut out all the commercials and songs, and it was just an air check tape. I'd never heard of an air check tape. Hmm. So he puts it on, and he plays the first break. I don't know what I was talking about, Dan. I was just rambling on <laughs> and he stops the tape and he goes now what's the listener benefit <laughs> of what you're doing here mm -hmm. and i said listener benefit i dana fuck the listener i don't have time to worry about the listener i'm doing a radio show <laughs> and he goes oh fuck the listener <laughs> interesting and then for the next two, two or three months i'd pass him in the hallway and he'd go greg kim fuck the listener <laughs> i like it Fuck the listener. <laughs> and I was basically saying, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I never have known what I'm doing. Yeah. You're assuming that there's some kind of a plan here. No, I, I work without a script, man. That's the way it is. Uh, that's, that's a good story. I like that one.
Consultants. I think it was Fred Jacobs and consultants uh, came in and listened to the uh, to the station and make recommendations. And they came back. The recommendation was for Greg Kinn. There was a well. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> I mean, he does not. He does everything wrong. But whatever it is, make sure he never learns because it works. Yeah. Well, uh, I didn't know how to read copy. Uh, I didn't know how. I didn't know doodly squat. But. <laughs> That was the that was the fun thing about it, you know. It was really it was real, and people could tune in and see me struggling to get through a commercial or a sleep train commercial. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, people like real. I mean, look at all the reality shows that are out there. Yeah, good point. You know, I must say, I I have no uh, negative feelings about K Fox, and. Uh, they were completely within their rights to do what they did. They just didn't pick up my contract is all that happened. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure we know it was for uh, bottom line reasons, budgetary reasons. So, and I all, and you know, I did make it to the hall of fame. I did have 16 and a half great years at the top rated morning show. So yeah, I look back on it. It was a great run, but I'm glad it happened because I needed to get kicked in the ass. I really needed a good boot to get started on stuff that I've been putting off. Like I've been putting off writing rubber soul for years 
And finally, I, I was I was home every day in my pajamas in front of the computer with no job to go to, and it just seemed like the right thing to do. Well, yeah, let's get into that a bit. When did you start writing? You've this is what your sixth book. Well, yeah, sixth book, fifth novel, fifth, fifth novel, fifth novel, novel fifth and you novel. did that compilation book as well, right. yeah. And uh, I started. First one came out in '96. That was horror show, and that was nominated for the Bram Stoker Award. That was for best first novel. Really had a lot of fun writing that, and then there were three other ones that followed, all on tour books. And I, the biggest thrill I got was going to New York to go to my book company and finding out it was in the Flatiron building, huh. you know, on Broadway, you know, that famous triangular shaped building that you always see in every shot of New York. Oh, sure. Yeah. They were in that building, the Flatiron. Mm -hmm. I went, Oh my God, <laughs> way cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've always been a writer going back to high school. I I've always written short stories and poetry and songs and even you know the beginnings of novels that I never finished. So when I finally got to 1996, and I just started in radio, so that coincided with me not having to go on the road all the time to keep a cash flow going. Suddenly, I had a little salary, and I was staying home, and I'd come home every night. Well, I'd do seven to midnight, so I'd get up in the morning and write all day before I went down there. So it was it was perfect, and then. Uh, a couple of years of that, you know, you get better. It, writing novels is kind of like writing songs. You know, it's a craft, and you can learn it, and you can get better at it as time goes by. And I think that's, I think, I think that's what happened to me because I really had so much fun after I got fired from uh, K Fox. I was depressed for a month. I hardly left the house. I was feeling sorry for myself. You know, I wasn't answering the phone. You know what it's like after you oh, fired sure. all those years. And I felt like, a, you know, rejected. I felt like nobody wanted me. I just felt awful. Then slowly I came out of the funk. It took about a month, maybe a month and a half. And I started working on Rubber Soul. And you know what? That book saw me through. I just wrote it from top to bottom. It seemed to write itself. It was really a lot of fun. And as I said before, I didn't want to stop, so I'm working on the sequel now. Yeah, it was a really great read. I mean, I, I love the Beatles like just about everybody else, uh, but I didn't know all the history, especially about the, like, the Philippines incident. I didn't have any idea about oh, that. Oh, yeah, all of that was real. There were death threats, and they were shoved around, and it was scary. And Brian Epstein himself believed that the Beatles were going to be, there was going to be an attempt on their lives and he and he told them to run across the tarmac, not walk, run, because he thought they were gunmen on the roofs of the airport, which is a traditional place to assassinate people in Manila. I mean, they always get them at the airport walking up to the plane. Yeah, very interesting. So what led you to want to write a historical fiction book involving the Beatles? Other than, I mean, obviously you love the Beatles, but... You had a lot of interviews that you had done over the years with various members of the Beatles team, correct? Right, yeah. I got to talk with Paul twice and Ringo twice. And uh, Jeff Emmerich, their, their, their uh, engineer, and Alf Bicknell, their driver, their official limousine driver. 
and uh, Yoko and uh, Patty Harrison and May Pang. And I got to talk to a lot of people in the Beatles orbit. And of course, two surviving Beatles. And when I was talking to both Paul and Ringo, I happened to ask him the same question, which I kind of wanted to know the answer. Where do the Beatles get their records? You know, like you couldn't buy them. They didn't have import shops. Yeah, that's a great how question. Do yeah. get, how do they get money by Barrett Strong? How do they get Please Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes or Twist and Shout by the Ively, Isley Brothers? They, there weren't import shops where you could get that kind of stuff. And Ringo said, hey, we had friends that were merchant marines and had friends that were merchant marines. And they brought back the latest singles from America and we would get them first and learn them first. And that gave me the idea for the character Dustbin Bob. The very guy that got the records that was the same age as the Beatles and loved the rock and roll. They came along and they discovered Dustbin Bob. He had the records and they wanted the music. So it was a match made in heaven. And of course, since they were all poor at the time and they, they came up together, uh, they were lifelong friends. You know, I've often said that it's hard to have normal friends if you're a rock star. Usually the only, you know, normal people friends you have are from went before you made it. Sure, yeah. You know, guys you went to high school with or, you know, guys you knew from way before because everybody else is a little bit odd, you know, a little strange. So, uh, and of course with the Beatles, that was magnified a hundred times. So one of their closest friends became Dustin Bob. And of course, I don't want to give it away, but uh, he does... Uh, step into the picture and save their skins exactly yeah we won't give any uh yeah it's a i'm telling you this book and i don't tell me what you thought dan i thought it was like nothing i'd ever read before that's kind of what i was shooting for nothing yeah i wanted it to be i mean it's historical fiction yes the beatles are in it but it's also a mystery and they're it's all weaved together like a tapestry and you know it fits together like a jigsaw puzzle and you know, when I, when I was working on it, when it was done, I let a little time go by and I read it from top to bottom for the millionth time. I said, you know, this is something I've never read anything like this before. This is like a, a new rock and roll fiction. So hopefully people are going to discover this and it's going to be, you know, it's like, wow, I've never even gotten close on something like this before. And, and by the way, Dan, I got to uh, point out. I'm looking for people to give me reviews on Amazon. I just found out from the publisher this week, PDP, Premier Digital Publishing, that if you get X amount of five-star reviews in Amazon, then they like bump you up to a recommended book, which like gets you on the front panel or some kind of stuff. So I started thinking, oh, okay, now i got to get everybody I know to write in and give me a five-star review on Amazon. And if we get to a certain X amount of them, suddenly Rubber Soul becomes a recommended book, which would really help because, you know, the, those first month or two when you put a book out, it's, it's a struggle. You know, you're struggling to get recognition and to get the sales up. So if anybody out there in the sound of my voice would, you know, feels like, doing a nice five-star review for Rubber Soul, go on over to Amazon. It's easy. It's fun. And by the way, you post them up there. I'm going to read it. 
everybody's going to read it. And I'll probably read it on the air since I've been reading some of the more interesting uh, reviews that we've gotten on my internet radio show. So there you have it, Dan. That's my commercial for the day. All right. Well, that's good because we like to get uh, plugs in as well for everybody. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to go there. We can also post a link on the uh, description of the podcast so people can click on the link and go directly there. Yeah. So we'll help you out as much as we yeah, can. Greg, gregkin.com is where everything begins. I mean, that's your portal to the podcast and to ordering Rubber Soul. You know, we were talking about, I just got home from some meetings, you know what we're talking about now? Like I didn't have enough stuff on my plate. Now it's time for the audio book. Oh, the audio book. Yes, correct. Good. Right. So I had to go out and, and find an accent coach that would help <laughs> my <laughs> Liverpool accent when I'm doing Tom and, you know, when I'm doing Ringo. Yeah. It's, it's hard to do a Liverpool accent. So I'm going to get a coach to help me do that. So I do a good job on the read since I'll be reading the book. That's great. When do you think that's going to be out? Oh, God. We were just <laughs> trying to figure out how long it was going to take. I don't even know. I'll tell you, Dan, I couldn't even make a ball. If we did 10 pages a day, and the book is about 350 pages, so that's about 35 days. But, you know, I'd have to do it after I did the internet radio show. So I, you know, I'm working out the logistics right now. I do know that I, I, I would love to read the book, and I, I think it's a real it's a real page-turner. Oh, and it'd be great for the author. You know, I always like when the author can read the books. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and if this works, uh, we're going to put it out. I may wind up reading my entire catalog in some time over the next year and a half, all five or six books. It's really been, um, it's been, a, it's been a really good literary trip. You know, because I've struggled to get to this point, but now every single review we've gotten has been spectacular. Every one. There hasn't been even one tepid review. So I'm really, help, uh, I'm really happy with the way the book's being received. I know that it's selling pretty well on Amazon. We don't have any sales figures yet, but I'm doing everything, and I'm doing a million interviews to support the, the book and I haven't worked this hard since uh, I used to get up at four in the morning, man. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a very interesting read for me. I mean, there's a lot of historical fiction, obviously, involving the Beatles, but it's just a good buddy story, a good love story, a good uh, adventure story, a good mystery yeah. story. It's got all those different elements in there, Woo! and, uh, I, you know, I really liked it. Hey, Dan, you got to go over to uh, Amazon and give me a five-star review. I, I will what you definitely. just said was great. I will definitely do it. I'll do it tonight. How about that? All right, look, I, I don't <laughs> want to blow my own horn here, but you know, it's important in my career that this book be successful because, you know, as I, as I sail into my senior years, we'll call them, <laughs> yeah. uh, I want to, you know, do more writing and do less everything else, so... You know, I, I radio is something I could do for the rest until I basically drop dead. And writing is the same thing. I've kind of settled down in my old age. I still like playing gigs, and I love it. I just don't like going on the road. I don't like airports. Oh, yeah. And, well, you know, at this point, you can pick the gigs you want to play. and you. Yeah, that's you know, it. I yeah. just pick them. Yeah. We got a concert coming up. Yeah. In Morgan Hill. This is a wild one with Brett Michaels, the Greg Kinn Band. The Tubes, Dada, and XEB. It's going to be a, and it's down in Morgan Hill, October 12th. 
Tickets, get this man, 15 bucks in advance. Oh, that's cheap. 15 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and 20 if you wait till the day of the show. Where were you when we needed you? You cannot be found. You cannot do. I believe in you. You're running me around. Well, you can take it. Ask a warning. Or take it any way you like. It's the lightning. into the great ken band just a little bit you know where you're at now now you're playing yep. with your son rye he's been playing with you for several years what's it yep. what's it like to have your son in the band oh uh, i'm telling you it's one of the ultimate kicks you you know i'm so proud of him and you, i i find i you know is unconsciously when he's doing a solo i'm up there grinning from ear to ear <laughs> like a proud yeah, papa exactly. and you know you're supposed to look cool People tell me, hey, did you know you're smiling your ass off up there? No. Yeah. He said, every time you look over at the boy, you start smiling. And it's true. I'm so proud of Rye. He, you know, he is so talented. Of course, you know, he was a student of Joe Satriani. He was also, he's a jazz guitar major. Oh, he went to Berklee School of Music in Boston. But he, he graduated from Cal Arts, jazz guitar major down in Valencia. That's the Disney School. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the man reads music. He plays every style. He's been in the band for years now, and it's like he grew up with the music. Yeah. So when he plays a solo, you hear a little bit of Satchin there. You hear a little bit of Dave Carpenter, our original guitar player. Sometimes you hear a little Jimmy Lyon in there, and you hear a little Greg Douglas. We've had so many great guitar players. Rye is like the best of all of them. And he integrates some of their riffs into the stuff that he plays. So 
it's I'm I'm super proud of Rye. Um, we're thinking about doing an album together. You've heard of Mumford and Sons, right? Oh yeah, that's a popular. Okay, band. how about Kin and Kin? There you go. Or maybe Kin and Son. Yeah. So uh, we're working on uh, coming up with some tunes here. We may go in to the studio this winter, and I'd love to put out uh, a Kin and Kin album, man. You know, we'd have to have a couple of really good shredders on there so the the guy gets a chance to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Let's jump into uh, some of the charities you're involved with, especially I just wanted to ask you about Operation Care and Comfort and what your role in that has been. Well, I, I love those guys and Operation Care and Comfort. They've sent out over three quarters of a million tons of food. I mean, uh, they send things to the troops that are in harm's way. So like, you know, they'll send candy or beef jerky and footballs and paperbacks and magazines and games and video games and you know dvds anything that the guys can't have because when when you're in bagran air force base there is nothing <laughs> there's not there's no pizza there's nothing everything in the world comes from home yeah so we've got about uh, over 500 different units that are stationed all over the world. Most of them are in harm's way, in tough spots, where they can't get anything. So we send them care packages. These big old boxes show up from Operation Care and Comfort, and they got all the comforts at home in there. You know, deodorant and soap and shavers and comic books and you name it. Anything to make the guys feel better. Now, in my role was I was the football guy. I used to go like to Target. And make a deal, uh, you know, like with the manager to buy like a hundred footballs at you know a cheap price, and send them all over. Because we, I figured after a tough day of shooting at the bad guys, you'd want to just play a little catch with a football. You know, these guys are under tremendous stress. At the end of the day, what would be better than a little game of catch? So I started sending footballs out to every unit, and I got pictures back of guys playing catch with my footballs on the beach at Mogadishu, you know, in the, in the deserts of Afghanistan and in the, in the, in the mountains of Pakistan. And there they are throwing my footballs around. And it makes me feel good that I could do something to help relieve the pressure that these guys are under. And that's what Operation Care and Comfort is all about. They send packages, care packages to our men in, in uniform and women too, by the way. That's not it's just not a guy thing. Oh yeah. So, yeah. Men and women. I've been working with them, geez, for gosh, years and years. We always do two nights at the Sharks Tank. Uh, we do uh, support the troops night where we collect money and we collect items to be sent. And uh, I usually sing the national anthem every year. We do at least one 49ers game and one Giants game and one A's game. And even sometimes the Raiders, where I go out and support the troops, they and they have uniformed uh, troops stationed around the venue, you know, with uh, with baskets, and you drop in, you know, drop in a buck, a twenty, a quarter, whatever you got. We appreciate it. Every penny that we collect goes to the troops. Nobody gets paid. And the head lady, Julie De Maria, who is just an angel. She said, nobody's ever gotten a penny. It's all volunteers. 
They do it for free and they use all their money to either buy the goods or pay for the postage. So uh, I feel real good about that. Of course, they, they'll be at the, the concert and they'll be collecting there and you can uh, come on down and, and make a donation and feel good about life. And you, you might even run into a couple of Green Berets. Who knows? Oh, that's great. Yeah, I was in the Coast Guard for 10 years, and I still worked for them. And, uh, oh, that's yeah, great. We, yeah, so uh, I can well, get behind that. Well, anybody that serves, you know, that's, it's hats off, you know. Oh, certainly, yeah. And, then, yeah, those guys need all the help they can get. <laughs> because especially in this uh, economy, it's not like Well, hey, getting... look, I know people that go over there and play. Now, I'm too much of a pussy to go over and actually <laughs> play. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, Joan Jett goes over there all the time, unannounced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she called me from Bagran Air Force Base about a year ago, about this time a year ago, and she goes, yeah, you'll never guess where I am. Where? Bagran Air Force Base. She goes, there's nothing. There's no toilets. You have to shit in a hole in the ground. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing. There's no pizza. There's nothing. Uh, and she says, would you come over here and play for the guys? I said, yeah, hey, come on. Look, I got <laughs> asthma. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm suffering from hemorrhoids. I, I, don't, I don't think I could make the trip. But she does it all the time. So in lieu of me being, you know, Benny Goodman and going over there to entertain the troops, uh, I do my best taking care of things on the home front and making sure that Operation Care and Comfort is taken care of. Well, you're certainly doing your part. That's awesome. Well, thanks, man. And you know what? I think anybody would do it if they were in my shoes. I don't know how I got involved with them. I really don't remember when I met them. I just know that I I've been with them forever, and I love them. All right, so my final question is, what's next for you? I know you've talked about some screenplays. You've obviously got your podcast. Uh, what else do you want to talk about? Um, movies. Yes. Uh, I want to make movies and I'm going to, uh, next year about this time, hopefully we'll be talking about going into production on a movie. I got an idea for horror show, my first novel. I want to film that. And I'm looking for some, uh, investors money right now. I'm looking to put together a budget. Uh, I got a director in mind and I just reached out to him this week. So we'll see. I mean, I'm hoping that we can get going on that. And also, uh, my agent is very optimistic about selling the screen rights to Rubber Soul. She seems to think it would make a great movie. I think it'd be hard to cast it, but man, it would be a great movie. Yeah, I think, uh, like I said in my synopsis or review, I guess uh, it would make it would be a very interesting movie. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to get you know, lookalikes. Yeah. But, you know, it tells a hell of a story, and I, I, I really think that that could go. So that, that's, that's up in the air. So the next thing for me is movies. I want to start producing movies. And so to learn more about what you're involved with and what's going on in the Kensert, that's all on gregken.com, correct? That's the place to go. You can see everything there. There's links to everything in the world. You can get the book and check out the Kensert. And the and the internet radio show and and I you know I also blog all the time on there and just bloviate on different subjects. So <laughs> pop on over to gregkin.com. I'm sure you'll be entertained. All right. Well, that's great. Hey, Greg, thanks a lot for uh, being on Music Life Radio. I really appreciate it. Hey, that was a lot of fun, Dan. Let's do it again. Sounds good. Yeah, when you got something else coming out. Um, oh yeah, I'm sure out. something will pop up, and I'll be back, and I'll uh, I'll give you a holler. Sounds good. All right. Well, Greg, have a great night, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. 
Dan, it's been a pleasure, and thank you. Thanks again to Greg Ken for an amazing interview. What a fascinating talk. Now check out the Kensert on October 12th at the Morgan Hill Outdoor Sports Center. Lots of great acts, including the Great Ken Band. We're going to leave you with one more song from Great Ken Band, Noah Noah. It's an acoustic version. This is a really nice song. Still life hanging on the wall High heels clicking in the hall And the spell of French perfume Lingers after she's gone And if you read between the lines Wait for the sun that never shines Standing in a sad cafe I wonder if they've gone away Noah, Noah Long before Picasso's blues Van Gogh colors changing hue South Pacific calls your name On an island there's no shame As the rain falls on the sand Everyone forgets your name And if it gives you peace of mind You never know just what you'll find Noah, Noah Bye.
Thanks again for checking out Music Live Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter, and we'll catch you next time.